0: Hey Jaxiteers, thanks again for stopping by. If you're new to the channel, my name is Riley and I'm a former Jehovah's Witness. And today I'm introducing Jeffrey Law who has a very interesting story. Um, He served as a missionary, Um, he's from the United States but he served as a missionary for some time in China. So Jeffrey, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing very well, thank you. Nice to meet you.
0: Nice to meet you too. So we got into contact uh, because you're a friend of Sean Miller, who was like the first XJW that I interviewed on the channel. So how do you know Sean?
1: Um, Sean and I go back um, some time. We met through mutual friends. Um, he mentioned one of his friends uh, that we met through in his in his during his interview, but. Um, yeah, we are, I feel like we're exactly the same age and um, we're raised in fairly similar areas of California. Um, and so by the time we were like teenagers, he, he had talked about him being in a band. Um, so I was friends with one of the keyboardists in the band and one of like the songwriters. And so I think he was the songwriter. So, um, you know, like kind of those witness parties, where you meet and, you know, you drive an hour and a half to get someplace, you know, (laughs) just to kind of sit on somebody's couch. Um, I think we met in one of those places. But um, I actually was pretty close with his brother, um, who he mentioned. Uh, I actually um, knew him also while I was in China, so, and his wife. So that's kind of how we were connected, as well as his, one of his friends in the same congregation or the area he was also um in China so we just kind of all you know ran in similar concentric circles I guess
0: okay cool cool so um when we spoke um earlier when we were like speaking over email you mentioned that you served in China um around the same time as Amboscora is that correct
1: so um it's actually kind of an interesting story with Amber, I had never met her. She had already been disfellowshipped and had left when I got to China. However, the the person that I knew in China, the person that I wrote in my letter, like, I know this person. And so they send you to a congregation. Typically, you know someone, which is was in um Shanghai, uh, was her ex-husband. So I didn't know that at the time. Um, I ended up being the best man in his wedding. Um, I like through mutual friends kind of like helped him meet his second wife. That's the person I was in the wedding with when he moved to California. He used to stay with my parents, um, when he came to visit and he kind of like took me under his wing as like elder ministerial servant thing in China. Um, so I actually hadn't met Amber. I had been in like my friend circle, they, they knew her from before um so i i just kind of knew about her but i didn't actually meet her until i started waking up and i reached out to her and kind of like was like hey um i was in you know your ex-husband's wedding and i just read your book like would you want to be friends on instagram kind of thing and we've become friends since and she's been so supportive and really helpful for me in my like navigating my exit which has been like uh, I almost said a blessing, but just something that's been, you know, really helpful for me.
0: Oh, cool. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. So uh for those of you who aren't aware of Amber Scora, she's an ex-witness who's written a book called Leaving the Witness, which is a really good book, uh, very popular among um ex-Jehovah's Witnesses. So how did you um become a Jehovah's Witness?
1: Uh, I was born into it. My My parents were baptized in the late 70s, early 80s, and um, I was born in 84, so I was raised as one of Jehovah's Witnesses. So it was me, my parents, and my two older brothers. And the rest of our family, on both sides, they aren't Witnesses.
0: Right, okay. So you were born into it. So what was your childhood like? I mean, were your parents... Uh, strict witnesses or were they m- more kind of liberal?
1: My parents were, you know, it's a tough question. I feel like they were strict in some ways, liberal in others. Um, I kind of was laughing about Sean's interview and you both were talking about cartoons and things you could and couldn't watch. My my mom was very adamant that I could not watch X-Men. Um, although I had all the, f- the action figures um you know i could watch batman and have the action figures there i could watch scooby doo but i couldn't watch the teenage mutant ninja turtles movie because of the violence like it was just very like you know um a lot of hypocrisy there but um like growing up i remember going to i remember going to all the meetings but you know for a period of time i i remember like watching saturday morning cartoons and um, not being at meetings. So there was a period of time where they were slightly inactive. My my father was really involved with his work and traveled quite a bit. And um, by that time, my oldest brother had already been married and left the house. Um, and my middle brother was a teenager and was like often gone. So I think it was kind of like, let's just stay in. It's easier to stay in tonight kind of a thing. Um but my dad wasn't around, and um we were never a family that did regular actually we never did a family worship ever um it was more of just kind of like witness by osmosis but or be a witness by osmosis like at the kingdom hall, but it was a but they were very strict about appearances, so like you know you had to look the part, you had to be quiet, you had to appear to be the perfect witness um and so i think that's kind of what i took from that going forward where it was that it was more important to appear perfect than to do the the right thing you know as far as the witness world is concerned
0: it's interesting that you say you you uh allowed to watch scooby-doo because of, <laughs> among the witnesses i, I guess I scooby-doo is like the second most banned cartoon after the smurfs obviously <laughs>
1: and i even at the time was like i knew that and i was like i'm just gonna take what i can take and it was just a strange i don't know i think my parents finally watched it and realized they weren't actually ghosts they were just always meddling kids so i think maybe that was the saving
0: grace i mean i remember trying to explain that to my to my mom you know, so there, there's never a real ghost or a real monster. It's always like right. a crooked property developer, developer in disguise. You know? yeah. So That's there's right. nothing yeah. supernatural about it. But she, she was having none of it. I still wasn't allowed to watch Scooby Doo. <laughs> right. Yeah. How did you How did you fare with uh, the truth <laughs> in quotes? Mm-hmm. How did you fare with that in your in your teenage years? Because for, for most witnesses, the teenage years are the most turbulent, where the religious needs right. to turn.
1: As a young teenager, I was very, very strong and very zealous. I I got baptized when I was fifteen. Um, I wanted to get baptized when I was much younger, but wasn't allowed. And um, from the moment I got baptized. I immediately started auxiliary pioneering and planning for like basically a missionary experience, um, which was my goal always It was to go to like, actually it's really strange when I was little, um, my mom and I used to do like our prayers before bed and I used to pray to be a missionary in China, which is like very strange that I ended up there. Um, but I. I quickly developed, um, uh, I guess a habit of living a double life in high school. So I, I was really shy through school. And by the time I got to high school, I really craved just like friends and, um, popularity, I think. And I joined drama. And for some reason, my parents let me sign up for plays like after school plays which is like definitely a no-no i wasn't allowed to do any extracurricular activities um and it was there i met some like really cool friends that i really wanted to spend time with and um i started lying to my parents and you know kind of like using my brother as an excuse or my other friends as an excuse and saying i was staying someplace else and would end up going to my friend's house and sleeping over there or going to parties or that sort of thing. Um, Which quickly developed into like, um, you know, as the witnesses say, like you can't slave for two masters. Like I was, I was definitely more interested in spending time with them than I was in going to the meetings or going out in service or doing any spiritual activities. So um, I should also say too, I'm, like, when I was younger, I knew that I was gay. So I'm gay. And I knew from a very young age that I was, but I also knew that that was not okay. Um, I recognized that it was like, I was different. And what was different about me was not acceptable in my family or in the, the congregation. And so I actually didn't tell anybody until last year. Um, I mean, willingly, I should say. But um, I think that was like the biggest struggle for me as a teenager was trying to hide that from kids at school and from my friends and from my family and trying to, um, find a sense of like community that accepted me without having to put on a false pretense, I guess, just kind of like make a decision for myself and, and live for myself.
0: Wow. What, what a roller coaster of experiences. <laughs> yeah
1: actually like looking back it was really hard to kind of find my place and my balance as just a human being kind of like being pulled in so many different directions and um you know as like with my friends at school going to college and me not really planning for that but wanting to have a higher education and at the time in the states it was really within the witness community frowned upon going to college especially going away to college so for me, it was like, not really an an opportunity that I could have had. And it just was really frustrating to me. So I think that I was trying to figure out, like, desperately, like, what am I going to do with my life? And how am I going to support myself? And how am I going to stay interested in the rest of my life? You know, like, I wanted to do something. So it was a it was really a hard time in my late teens, for me, struggling with my identity my identity as a witness and kind of like what i wanted to be as a person when i grew up Mm -hmm. sure
0: i mean i can't even begin to imagine how how difficult it must have been because one one facet of high control groups and and cults is that they try to impose an identity on you so Mm -hmm. somebody whose sexuality is accepted that's even the case and that it's still difficult you know to to accept this group identity overwriting your own but when you add you know struggling with your your sexuality when you throw that into the mix as well i mean it must add a whole new dimension of of complexity to the to the situation
1: you know that you look at the young people ask book and it's like you know it says like what do i do if i have homosexual feelings and you read through the the suggestions and i actually just i was like doing some research and i was like um i looked at that article and it was like one was like pray i think uh what did it say oh the bloom of youth right it says pray fill your mind with the building thoughts shun pornography and gay propaganda those are the three things that are supposed to make you not gay (laughs) it's just like there's only so much you can do, right? Did any of those things happen? I mean, absolutely not. Like, And, you know, now I know, like, now after looking at, you know, different, like the bite model, for instance, and you realize it's just a thought-stopping technique of, like, fill your mind with something positive. Well, it's really hard. Like, that only lasts for so long. Um, and so I think that was, like, the hardest thing for me was trying to, like, you desperately are looking for those examples of people that, successfully like beat their homosexuality and you know got married to that beautiful sister and had the kids and like you know like you were that's what was you thought you could do like or just wait until um the new world and be fixed. So as a kid it's like you know and you're you know you're struggling with like adolescence and puberty and like it's just very confusing. So I think I learned from a young age to like stop myself basically and control um all those thoughts desires and kind of push them down into a little box and it served me for you know a number of years but eventually it caught up to me
0: but what effect did that have on your mental and emotional health
1: um i mean looking back i was like always kind of sad and lonely um i'm a re- pretty outgoing person and gregarious i like to be with p- people but um you know like sometimes like going to a party and like stressing about like how what am i gonna say how do i sound you know do i what are my clothes are they too trendy like am i like how should i pretend to like this girl like should i try like it was just a lot of pressure to conform all the time and i think that really i mean now i see it really split my personality into two different people you know one that i held inside and then the person that i projected on the outside Um, that was a skill that i had to learn really young so that i could protect myself and so it you know it even went down to like the stories that i told i only told certain stories i only was interested outwardly within certain topics or television shows or whatever, because I didn't want to seem too gay in front of people because one, I didn't want to get made fun of two. I didn't want to be found out because if I did, it was like, there's no going back, you know, and the stigma of that for me was too much to handle. So I think that that like really caused me to be introverted and um, depressed and uh really lonely because i had no one really to talk to about it so it was really a very superficial life like everything i did was just kind of for other people you know and living basically in my room by myself is kind of how it felt even though i was surrounded by people who i thought were my friends
0: yes that's a really sad story Really sad. I mean I, I um I recently recorded a podcast episode with um an ex-witness called Bo Bo Fair. He has mm. a podcast called Armageddon in Retros. And uh, the episode was about living a double life. And he mentioned that there's a a, a famous quote, I think it's from a psychologist whose name I, I can't remember. The quote said that everybody has two personalities, the one that they are within themselves and then the one that they show to other people. And the more alike right. those two personalities are, the happier you are. So mm-hmm. presumably, the, obvious, the, yeah. the opposite is also true. The more different they are, the more unhappy you are. So it, it, is that right. what your experience was?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, really, like I. That's why I think I um, like searched out for those friends at school because they just seemed more authentic to me, and they seem like they actually listened to me. Um I did come out to actually a friend who was also gay in my high school. And it felt really good to just be honest and like let that person in, you know. And I never had that before and I didn't have that afterwards for a really long time. Um it just felt very well, I mean it is intimate and when you share personal things about yourself. And I just, you know, I didn't realize that I hadn't had that with anyone before.
0: Wow. So presumably uh, when you got disfellowshipped, that was um, as a result of (laughs) um, exploring your sexuality. Um, Actually, it
1: was not.
0: It wasn't, oh, okay. Um,
1: I didn't even really at that time, like really acknowledge it to myself at that time. Like I was kind of like, I knew it, but I wouldn't admit, like I was like, well, it's just kind of like, maybe I'm bisexual. And like, we'll just, you know, leave it at that. Um, I actually got in trouble because I was, I was, um, using cannabis, like smoking joints with my friends in high school and I got caught. Um, but I had been doing it for like a year and still running mics. And <laughs> I was like an attendant and like, you know, doing all the things and like skipping meetings and telling my parents I was there and I was lying. And so that's, that's why I was just, dis- and I actually, I, t- I asked to be disfellowshipped. I, I wanted to continue to hang out with my friends, and um, and I knew I at the time I thought I knew it was the truth. Like I, I still believed in Jehovah, and I knew I would come back. I just wanted some time to myself. Right. So I was like okay. eight. I think I was seventeen at the time.
0: Right, right. So, what what made you decide
1: to want to come back? Um, you know, honestly, it was one night I was. I had a party at my house and my parents were out of town and they, I was just like, not happy. Like I was really unhappy. And it was just like a moment in time. I realized that the witnesses were right and that I had to go back. That's how I felt, you know, like I was just this burning desire. All of a sudden I felt that I didn't have Jehovah's Holy spirit. Like it felt like I didn't have it. And it was the first time I'd ever felt that. And now i like, I don't know what that feels like now that I'm thinking about it. But in my mind at the time, I felt like I had to like draw close to Jehovah again. Um, and so like the next day I called all my friends and I told them that, you know, I wouldn't be hanging out with them anymore. And then I called the elders and told them I wanted to have a meeting called my parents and told them all of this. And, um, yeah, I think I was actually reinstated after three months. It took only three months to get reinstated. And, you know, I told people like th- all my witness life that those three months were the best three months of my life because I was able to just focus solely on my relationship with Jehovah and draw close to him and I didn't have to worry about commenting or friends or anything else. Like I just sit at, and I would go to like two meetings a day. I would go to like Sunday meeting in the morning and then the afternoon. Um, I studied everything. I was like very zealous. But now I realize it was probably, I was probably happy just because I was like, it was like a vacation. Like I didn't have to do anything, you know, and people were nice to me again. Like they started to like, my parents were starting to talk to me again, include me in their lives so i think that that was probably why i enjoyed it so much um but yeah so i came back and was very gung-ho and like ready to like focus and move forward
0: wow so so after that um after you were reinstated you you know you you dive, dove head first into theocratic activity and then um yeah started pioneering tell us a bit about that
1: Like I actually moved to Alabama my first year of pioneering um, to serve where the need was greater. I lived there for a year um, with my brother and his wife. They lived there. And that was really hard. It was really difficult moving from California to Alabama. It's a totally different world from the West Coast. Like it is, it's really fun to visit and like no, you know, like if anyone's from Alabama, it's like very beautiful and the people are wonderful and the food's good. But for me it was really hard to crack into the culture there, especially like witness culture. It was really strange to me. So the hall like half white, half black, and that's it. Like no other, like no eight, no Asian friends, no, no like no one that was like Mexican or like Latinx, like every it was just black and white. And like From on the surface, everyone seemed to get along really well. Everyone was friends. But then when I realized after like a few months, I'm like, why did, like, how come I'm never invited to this person's house? Or how come we never go over here? And I realized it was like this de facto segregation in the congregation where the black friends hung out with the black friends and the white friends hung out with the white friends. They lived in a separate part of town. And like even service was strange because of the communities like they like i wasn't really welcome to go out in certain parts of town with some of the black brothers and sisters because they just didn't like to bring friends of other races and the same with the white it was just a really weird situation i started to feel very like uncomfortable um because i'd never experienced that before and then um I mean, as we know, there's a lot of underlying racism and not underlying, but racism in America, but I didn't expect to see it in the congregation or just that kind of like separation. Um, And the other thing was like, I was always alone. So no one would go out in service with me. So I would have to drive, you know, two hours to get to the territory by myself, work out in service by myself which is like driving territory, and then drive back by myself. Like it was, and that was my entire pioneering experience there.
0: Why would no one work with you on the
1: was So it was like this, it was this thing where like people, you get to the service meeting and, you know, they start pairing people off. And a lot of the friends had their partner that they worked with on certain days. And that was like the only person they worked with. And they did like Bible studies all day or whatever they did. And so, You know, when it came to me, I was like, I I don't really know anybody. I don't have Bible studies. You know, I just want to go out in service. But nobody would raise their hand to go. So I just had to go by myself, which was really hard. You know, it's your first year pioneering. So actually what I used to do was um, I would call my mom or I would call my friends who were in California out in service at the same time and just, like, put them on speakerphone in my car and just be out in service with them as I was, like, driving around.
0: Oh, which is wow. very
1: discouraging yeah of course yeah i like... can
0: only imagine how discouraging that must be especially um yeah. I mean, you mentioned that you had to drive for two hours to get to the territory that's crazy yeah. it was a
1: huge territory yeah and it's all country territory too so like i don't i don't know this area and sometimes you're driving over little stream beds in a sedan like it was just very strange um and yeah it was yeah, it was really hard living there. Um, so I only lasted eleven like again, eleven months, and I moved back and which was great. And then I pioneered for, again. I think I pioneered for three three years, yeah, three years. Um, and my parents ended up having to sell their house. And so they it was a little bit of a financial situation they were in. Um, it was during the bubble burst in the United States, so, like with the first one. And so they had to get rid of the house and they ended up living with their friends for, I won't say like almost a year, but, um, I didn't have anywhere to go. So I moved around a lot. I moved like from friends to friends for um, maybe like six months. Um, and one of the friends I was staying with. I think it was like, I just started feeling a little bit like displaced and just a little bit um, uneasy. I didn't feel like I could support myself pioneering. So I, I quit and I started working. Um, and I actually met like a former witness at the grocery store that I was working and we became friends. And I wondered, I ended up going over to his home one evening and he had some friends over. And they were like passing a joint around and i was like i just took a hit and i don't know why <laughs> but i did and then i took some home they were like oh here like this never happens they were like well why don't you just take some home with you i was like oh for free so i did and i woke up the next morning and i felt so guilty because i was staying at my friend's house and i like brought it into their house and my first thought was like oh no i brought demons into their house and you know, like, I feel so bad. Like, they could, you know, now we might have to, like, they might have like a spirit possession. And I threw it away and I immediately told the elders and what I did. And, um, ended up getting privately reproved. Um, and then, which was an interesting experience, the one of them tried to study with me, which was very strange. Um, I don't know if you ever studied with a witness or a brother after having been in the truth for very like there's nothing to learn like there's no there's nothing new to say so we were studying the draw close book and um you know he asked the question I'd answer it and I'm like I don't (laughs) I don't have anything else to say but um that's actually my least favorite book that we've ever studied I hate that book so much it's just like pandering that
0: book was published when Round about the time when they first started really dumbing down the literature
1: Yeah, Uh uh-huh.
0: Yeah, if I remember rightly, so it's it's the 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 language in the book is very very slim simplistic and it 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 does feel very condescending as well
1: Very condescending. Yeah, and like the illustrations and I don't know. I just never connected with it. Like I just never Honestly, it was very draining for me to like ever study that within book study or anything else
0: so how did you get into missionary service
1: yeah i um yeah i started with sign language in um alabama i was like driving back and forth from alabama to knoxville to a sign language congregation and um helping a sister in the hall translate in the kingdom hall and drive out to the country to you know deaf folks um and then i When I got back to California, I was like, I'll do sign language, but the people there were so weird and just very cold and not friendly at all. Like they wouldn't even give me the times and days that they met for service. like, they just said, you can find it online. online, Wow. It was very, like, it was, it was so strange. So, um, I didn't, I didn't join that congregation, um, So instead, I actually, I got into the Punjabi class. It was like the first Punjabi class in the United States. Um, And it was the first group in the United States. They actually used to fly to England for the circuit assemblies in the district. So I joined that, Um, that didn't pan out, I didn't end up doing it. Um, And so I was just like desperately looking for an option and I found Chinese, which at the time I thought was like Jehovah's direction. Um, I joined Chinese and I did this kind of like packed in my head with Jehovah and, you know, like I, I graduated the class and six months later I went to China to visit. And then six months after that, I moved to China. So it just all kind of happened really quickly. Um, and then I spent four years there.
0: For, for anyone who is not aware, the witnesses are actually banned in China. So you were serving in a country where your where the practicing of your religion was actually against the law. So what was that like?
1: Really exciting. Um, it was re- it was like the coolest thing I'd ever done. So is at the time you could only you had to go for a month and stay in one location before you could even go to a meeting? Um, so I was only there for seven days. Uh, and I was I stayed at the missionary home with them and went to the meetings and I was like totally hooked so I was like this is so great like I don't get to dress get dressed up I like <laughs> you know like it's so casual like you're kind of just walking around talking to people in the park then you go like eat you go to eat for a while and you like talk to somebody there then you go in the park and you go like grab drinks like it was just very like casual and easy other than that like i mean it was it was really exciting and fun and i honestly met like some of my best friends even now there and um a lot of them have left um since like same city like i think i have 14 friends now that have all left uh the organization just from that time period so there's something about it that really woke us up um i think it was just seeing like the the hypocrisy of the organization and like going back and forth between America and there and just seeing the difference the way things are run. And like, cause you think of it, the organization is one way and that everything is the same and that's what they say. But when you are living in a place like China, you realize that it's pretty much just run by whomever is on top there. Like there wasn't any communication from the branch. So it was like, these kind of like top dogs from Canada and U.S. and Japan that you know were a bit of a you know a bit egomaniacs, and they were very charismatic, and they would just tell you like, "Oh, it's okay for sisters to do shepherding calls," and um, you know, like you don't have to go out to the like meet with, for field service; you can just do your own thing. Or it was very very bizarre, like what we did there versus what we got away with here. Um, Wow. Wow. That's so
0: interesting. That's such a fascinating story. So what what you described about how you conduct meetings and and ministry Mm
1: -hmm.
0: in China where where it's banned, it sounds very much like a spy movie. (laughs) Do you think your experience of living a double life as a teenager kind of helped you to adjust to that kind of theocratic lifestyle?
1: Absolutely. And so I think it was like this anonymity there, there you could kind of like skate by. They'd occasionally ask you like, are you okay? Is everything good? And I'm like, I'm fine. I'm like, okay. Like they didn't want to hear that anything was bad or that you were struggling in any way, because like, quite honestly, if you were, they would just say, go home. Like, this isn't a place for you. Like this is a place for strong, spiritually, spiritually strong witnesses. We can't, hold anybody up right but um and the other thing is interesting i think was like a lot of the people that were there were almost like which explains why a lot of them are out now i think that they were fringe witnesses or witnesses that were looking for freedom looking to hide or looking to looking it was like their last resort basically you know you're looking for something to satisfy or fulfill you, um, intellectually or, you know, just like something that stimulates you. That's interesting. Not just like riding around in a car every day. Um, and so, and I also met a lot of gay witnesses there. Um, some were out at the time, still witnesses, but like, obviously not acting on anything, but they were openly gay um like a lot which is (laughs) surprising um and a lot of witnesses are like drinking issues and like other issues that we're looking to hide and a lot of fun ones and a lot of weird ones but i do think that it's like it did attract a certain breed of jehovah's witness um to move there because it was like one you're not connected to anyone um, you're not allowed to talk about what you're doing with anyone. You're not allowed to tell your family where you are. You're not allowed to tell them any activities. Um, it's hard to communicate with people. So you're kind of like on an island, which is, for some people like me, it was it was kind of like, um, it's like paradise. You can kind of start over. So I think for me, that was the biggest draw was just kind of this like freedom. It was a freedom.
0: But that that's something that um, I've heard Amber Scora say many times over, um, you know, when she's, because uh, obviously she travels around and, 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 and as a speaker in lots of conferences and interviews. And uh, one one of her re- recurring jokes is that um, I travel to a communist regime to get more freedom. <laughs>
1: yeah, I know. Right. And the like only witnesses, it's like the only witnesses we get there, we're like, oh, my God, I can breathe. <laughs> which is so strange.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, very strange. So, where did it all start going wrong? How did you start waking up?
1: Or right, I guess you should say, (laughs) right? Um,
0: Yeah, actually, actually, yeah, when did it start going right?
1: (laughs) I had an interaction with a witness that I ended up getting in trouble for when I was in China and the person's friend found out about it and ultimately blackmailed me by saying, if you don't tell what you did to, if you don't say what happened, and it was like a mutual consensual thing. It was like not a, you know, and it wasn't even a thing. Like now, like I'm looking back and like it's so innocent. Like there's nothing really that happened, um, but it was such a big deal. and. He he said that if he did, if I didn't tell like my closest friends there that I was one gay and two what happened, that he would tell them himself. And he was given not to elders, mind you, that he would tell them, and he would give me like a a certain amount of time to do it. And I was already kind of like getting to a point, Rose feeling anxiety and uh, depression for just like guilt and shame and all the stuff that goes with, you know, messing up in the organization. Um, and then also it's just China was starting to wear on me, just the the constant pressure, the constant looking over your shoulder, the constant fear that you're going to get caught or someone's going to go to jail because of something you did or said or Um, It was a lot of anxiety, and it was kind of like an undercurrent all day, every day. And the meetings were the worst because, you know, you have maybe two or three parts a night, plus you have responsibilities like attendance and sound. And um, you might be watching the camera at the front door and unlocking the door when people come up. And like, it's just a lot of pressure, Uh, and it's a foreign language. and so i think that just started to build in me and and because of that interaction i ended up did telling one of my my closest friend there um and it just was like it felt like a forced like someone forced me to come out when i wasn't ready and i wasn't even ready to do that to my for myself and and then having to talk to the elders about that um and have the judicial meeting there and then um you know being announced to like you lose all your privileges and like it was just so much pressure um and then there was like because of that there was like fallout from people you know they, I'd be at a party and somebody would come up to me and be like I know what you you did and, like i because the person ultimately left china and was disfellowshipped and i was not I was just reproved privately and they felt that that was not just, and there's nothing I could do about that, (laughs) but they were, you know, they attacked me and said it was my fault. And it was just a really bad experience and I had nowhere to go and nowhere to run to. Um, and so I left, I decided to leave and I left really abruptly. I got a job online. I mean, I got a job at my current company. I interviewed there and I, before I even got the job, I just left. So I got the job on, I had my last interview on Wednesday and I flew it on Sunday. And I started working the following Wednesday. Like I just was like, I got to get out of here and start something else. So I left and when I left and came back to the States, even though I was still mentally in, I was not, like something was off. Like I just could not get back like the wheels could not start turning again for me like i just wasn't comfortable at the kingdom hall i wasn't comfortable around any of the witnesses in california um i started to feel really like anxious like a lot has started to have a lot of anxiety and you know it got to the point where like i couldn't even comment so, like for a year i wouldn't comment and it was hard cause I was still in foreign language and like, there was a lot of pressure there for me to perform because I'm a, I was a brother from China. So I should have the experience and the language skills and I should have been like giving great talks and like, and like I was having panic attacks, just trying to give a Bible reading. Like I was like, I couldn't, I could barely do that. Um, so like it all started to feel, like too much for me to handle. Right. Um, but I think what it really came down to was me starting to recognize my sexuality was not going to go away because this, at this point was the second time I had gotten trouble for my sexuality or my first time that I got in trouble for my sexuality or having to do with that. And, um, it started to feel like uh I had no way out and it started to feel like i was just going to have to wait until the new world to be fixed you know and i think that that just really was too much to handle and to hold a job and to like have a full time job in the congregation and try to be perfect it was things like that where i was just like it's it started to feel um Kind of like white blood cells you know like or t-cells or whatever i'm not a biologist but like it felt like the congregation was eating itself and eating me and constantly criticizing me for trying and like i would give a prayer and i get critiqued you know sisters would come up to me and tell me what i said wrong or it was or i would get counseled because i have my like the car that I have or I would get counseled because I had a job, a full-time job, which actually it was only four days a week. And I it's like I had to support myself. So it just started to feel like unloving, I guess. Sure. Sure. Okay. And like and like growing up, like I don't know if you felt this way, but like for me, like I never understood 1914. Then math never made sense. And so for me, it just wasn't a big deal. Prophecy was like, eh. I don't get it, but you know, for me, it was all about the love and the brotherhood. My, my close friends, for instance, um, you know, they just weren't supportive and they didn't listen when I tried to ask for help. And I think that was the beginning of the end for me. It was like, I started to feel like no one had my back and again, it was just me alone. And I mean, what do you do with that? I don't know
0: so at this point when you started feeling uh isolated and and alone in the congregation um did you actually start researching anything about the organization or did you or was it just all based on on your experience that you started to wake up
1: so that was like the interesting thing i got this text from my friend who was still in china and he asked me we were just chatting and he asked me if I had ever read the book that Ray Franz wrote. And I, I had heard of the book before and I had kind of like heard of him like way back in the day, like out in service, people talking about him. So I knew it was an apostate book, but I didn't know what it was about. And I asked him, I was like, are you reading it? <laughs> and he like texted back and he's like, well, you know, I, I've been reading it. And I think it's important to look at different people's perspectives and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I I just told him basically, like, you know, that's really dangerous. And, you know, I don't think you should be doing it, but, you know, just be careful. And it kind of stuck with me a little bit. And I thought about that book quite a bit. And I I even talked to an elder friend of mine that was pretty open-minded. I didn't share his name, but I was like, my friend's reading this book and I don't know what to do and he just said like don't mess with that stuff. I was like, okay, yeah, that's kind of what I thought. And that's about the time when um, I saw Amber Scora on the Trevor Noah show. And so I remember like kind of like should I watch it? Should I not watch it? It was on YouTube and I was like, well, I mean, it's on Trevor Noah, like how apostate could it be, right? So I watched it and and I should I should tell you like I've heard stories about her like throughout my entire time in China from her ex-husband, from friends, really vilifying her and demonizing her and making her out to be, you know, selfish and create, like all the all the things that they say apostates are, right? Mentally unstable, blah blah blah. And when I saw her, I was like My first reaction was, oh shit, she's going to be a big deal to witnesses. Like, she is a problem, is my first reaction. Because she was poised and charming and normal and beautiful. And like, I just was like, she's too normal. She doesn't seem like an apostate. And that was like really what did it for me, I think, was this like, idea of like she's actually just a human being um so i i read her book i i got it i read it and i started feeling like oh crap like (laughs) like a lot of what she's saying resonates and it was it made me really uncomfortable um so and I should say by this time, like, I was, it was in parallel to my, like, emotional health kind of declining. So, like, this is, and this is not that long ago. This is, like, this is winter of 2019. Um, I had just come back from a business trip, and I had gotten in trouble again in Asia. The, I met an American person. I knew I was going to do it, and I was feeling, like, extremely emotional, like, I was having these breakdowns that i couldn't explain um which i had in china when i was visiting and um when i got back i told the elders about it i'm sorry i'm like kind of like jumping around a bit but um when i the last judicial meeting i had like i just like i couldn't summon that kind of like fervor that they expect you you know like to have like that apologetic sadness that they want they want to see that like like torture in your soul <laughs> i just couldn't do it like i was just like tortured out like i just i'm sitting there with these three men one of them i'd never met before he was just like brand new to the hall i had never met him and they were asking me these questions about pornography and like what do, what did I do and very specific things and writing them all down and um and it was during the English meeting and you know I could s- see them all walking in and like looking to see who's like waiting in their in their car and um I remember praying actually in the car and I was like please Jehovah don't let me get this fellowship like I don't want to get this fellowship if I get this fellowship but like I don't know if I can come back from this like. I'm too tired of holding all of this in like my sexuality and my, like just everything. I just am tired. And I actually changed the prayer midway cause I stopped myself and I just didn't feel anything. And I felt like for the first time I was like, you know what, actually just like, let me go. <laughs> like, let's just see what happens. And I don't care. Um, so I went back in and, I kind of promised myself that i would never i would never do that again like i would never ever go through that experience of the judicial committee ever again i ended up staying home more and my it kind of spiraled my depression into like a really serious dark place where um i actually contemplated suicide like almost every day it got to the point where i actually was scared for myself, like, um, like I had a psychotic break and I couldn't, I still couldn't go to the therapist. I brought, I went to the doctor and it was so bad that I actually saw him once a week and he put me on medication and I had to see him once a week and talk to him, um, like over email until i found a therapist and um and when i did finally go you know that was my biggest fear was the first thing that came out was that i'm gay and i'm in in this religion and that's when things kind of like broke loose for me when i realized that like Because my my mindset was like, suicide is better than being gay. Jehovah can forgive me for killing myself. But if I am gay, he cannot. And I'll die forever. But if I kill myself, I can be resurrected and be not gay anymore. Like, I'll be normal, what I thought was normal. Like, what I was holding out for. So, um, but when I saw the therapist and I actually told her, it kind of like all, it became real to me, like my sexuality and I like, I accepted it. And I actually kind of opened up, like things started to like shake loose. And I started telling my friends and I told my parents. And and I think from there, I, I just couldn't reconcile being in the organization it it felt like a lie. Like I just couldn't lie anymore. And I realized that what they had been doing is telling me to lie all my life when they say that we have the truth and they don't allow you to speak truth or be truthful in who you are. And so it got to the point for me where I was like, I, I just don't believe that this is accurate truth. And that's when like, my my real research started coming in i stopped going to the meetings i stopped going out in service um and i kind of did a slow fade my and then pan, the pandemic happened so it kind of like my parents didn't they thought i was going to meetings for months they asked me about a memorial they asked me about the convention like and i was just like oh great yeah that's great yeah anyways like try to change the subject i wasn't ready to share that with them but um but yeah that was kind of like my my escape so that's
0: so that's um really recent then um so yeah. the, so we're talking early 2020. Mm-hmm. yeah
1: yeah late 2019 through like early 2020 so like february february is really when i like made the decision to leave i tore my blood card up i threw it in the garbage um and i decided that this was in fact not what i wanted to do and that's when i started um exploring other cults and like realizing that they have very like huge similarities if not exact similarities to jehovah's witnesses um stephen hassan's bite model was like mind-blowing to me like i read it and i shut the book and i was like i cannot believe like i had been blind for so long for 35 years like i just didn't see it and it's all there it's like all there and he even like puts the witnesses against the bite model on his website and it's not like he's lying (laughs) he's not an apostate lying like it's all things that we do or we did as witnesses and rather than scare me, it was like really liberating. um, Cause it let me, it like gave me the permission to let go of the organization and to like try to understand who I really am, you know?
0: Sure, sure, I totally get that. I mean, I had um, a similar experience when I read the Bible, when I read uh, Stephen Hassan's book, um, there, there was a chapter where he spoke about his experiences in the Moonies and what their teachings were. And I could not believe the similarities between the Witnesses and the Moonies. I, I was completely yeah. astounded. Because as a Witness, you're yeah. that, that your religion and your faith is so unique, we're so different to yeah. other, other religions, particularly other Christian religions. But then when you examine other High control groups and cults, and you realize that they are all that they're like cousins of each other. Yeah, you know that it's like there's a there's like a cult blueprint, and each of these groups take portions of it. You know, so they're all related. It, it, It it was completely astonishing.
1: And actually, the other thing that was like so frustrating to me, I was like, it was so maddening, is last year I watched part of the regional convention and Stephen Lett had a talk about, I don't know what it was about, but it was about the paradise. And he used an example of somebody that was gay. And he said, you know, like imagine the homosexual, they, you know, they have to like, they die and they're resurrected and, you know, they still have to work at that. And they're still going to have to like, um want to change their lifestyle to be a part of jehovah's organization or his kingdom and i was like thinking about him like that is not at all what the doctrine that i was taught says that is the first time anyone's ever said that somebody would be resurrected with this kind of like sin right that they call a sin and i was like that's bullshit. Like, I don't want to be like, that was my entire life was like looking forward to a time where I didn't have to have this pain anymore. I could be like a normal, like all my other friends who I thought they were like normal and happy. And then to imagine that, like, no, I still have to deal with this. Like, well, I don't want to do it. (laughs) That was like, and then I don't know if you saw Lloyd Evans interview with his niece. At all. With Stephen Lett's niece.
0: Yes. I did see that. And I saw her I know, her own video on her channel as well, speaking about her brother.
1: Yeah. I mean, that was heartbreaking. And so, like, for me, that was the kind of the – that last year was the moment when I realized that, um, like, I don't want to hide anymore. Like, I don't want to – I'm not going to hide from my parents, from the elders, from other witnesses. Like, I'm not going to pretend that I am something that I'm not um and for the the mere fact that like i want to be happy and i also want other people like me in the organization to know that they can be happy too and and it is not a place for it's not a place for anyone but it's especially not a place for anyone that's gay like it is not it's not a healthy environment um but that there is an option to leave like you can leave so that's why like this is like your channel and so many other people's channels and Lloyd's channel are so important to just like give the opportunity for people in the privacy of their own homes to like who are PEMO maybe, or even POMO or like curious, right? To see that there is another side and um, there's no real such thing as an apostate. It's just like people living their lives. And then, honestly, it's a better life. Like It is the actual, the real life, as they like to say.
0: Exactly. Yeah, I, I totally, totally agree with you. In fact, um, I've got that in my Twitter bio. In my Twitter really- bio, it says I'm trying to get a firm hold of the real, real life.
1: <laughs> right. The real, real life, yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. So, so what's your situation now? Are you faded? Are you disfellowshipped? Or did you disassociate?
1: It wasn't until january of this year that i really decided that i my conscience doesn't allow me to stay on the books so i decided to disassociate so i wrote my letter and i sent my letter early january um just but i sent it to the branch and i gave them my kingdom hall information and asked them not to contact me about it yeah i'm Honestly, like, uh, I could not be happier. I, I moved, I'm, i I met a, I met an amazing guy. Um, we've been dating for a year. Actually it was like the day before pandemic was our first date. It was my first date ever. Like I'd never even thought I would ever have a relationship. Um, we now live together and yeah, I'm just like, honestly, I could not be happier with the decisions that I've made. It's been difficult and you know like it's a lot of hard conversations all the time. Um and it's a lot of awkward conversations like somehow like I feel like I've become a real person like at work like now people actually know who I am. Before people were like yeah there was so- I always liked you but there's something weird about you. You just like seemed like you never gave information. You never hung out like you just kind of seemed like you were like two-faced which was weird because you know like as a witness you think you're so like kind and loving but i really didn't start really appreciating people and seeing people for people until i until i finally decided to leave and i was like look i remember like looking around one day on the street on my commute to work and thinking like colors seemed brighter like, my senses were heightened. Um, and I was like looking at people, like, genuinely wanting to know about their lives. Like, I wanted to know everything about everything. Like, I wanted to make up for lost time and, um, you know, be a successful person, be kind and like be sincere and all the things I felt like I wasn't as a witness. I,
0: I was um, speaking with a couple of ex witnesses not too long ago. Uh, one of them's a, a good friend of mine. And the other one, I kind of knew growing up, but we were we weren't really friends. But um, so the three of us met up, and um, we were talking, and the subjects of empathy came up. So I asked, "Do do you find that you're you're more empathetic now that you're no longer a witness?" And unanimously, <laughs> all three of us said, "You know, it was like absolutely," because as a witness, you 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 think you care about people you think you care mm-hmm. about people but you don't actually because you're waiting for this great thing to happen where jehovah is just going to do undo you know control z <laughs> undo undo everything and put everything right so you're not really interested when people are, are suffering now because you just Think to yourself well it's not going to be forever soon jehovah's gonna jehovah's just gonna fix everything um, but now that you don't have that to fall back on it matters when people suffer it matters yeah. you can't just write it off Definitely. and dismiss it and say jehovah's gonna fix it don't worry and just you know t- turn away you actually care about things that are happening in the world you care about people's struggles and, and stuff so uh, presumably you you find exactly the same thing
1: Exactly. I think the thing, too, that really bothers me now is like my mom, before she knew I was exiting, she would say things to me like, oh, like Satan's system. It's just, you know, it's just so bad. Satan's system. Or, you know, just wait wait on Jehovah. And like those. I realize now it's just like it's basically like. It's like emotional Prozac, even as a witness, I was always like, if you see something that's wrong or is could be fixed fix it that's your job and now it's like I feel like I have that right and that obligation to assist where I can so like I'm really like now I'm so focused on like how can I do more like I want to do philanthropy or I want to get involved in like volunteering and um something like I just want to do something tangible I think it's that connect connection to people in community that I really really appreciate now um, and in a way you know like I, I almost hate to say it but like being raised as a witness kind of primed me for that because I really thought I was sincerely helping people and you probably did too like most witnesses you know think they're empathetic think they're the salt of the earth trying to help people in reality they're they're just kind of like a nuisance <laughs> you know like <laughs>
0: Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I, I was having this discussion with some um, ex-witnesses just yesterday. You know about did you ever feel that you were doing good when when you were out on the ministry? And, and by and large, most most of us didn't. You know, we we just felt that right. we were bothering people. You know, we did. I mean, I yeah. Speaking personally, I I for the first time in my life, I actually feel like I'm doing good for people through my you mm-hmm. know my activism work. Yeah but I never mm-hmm. not once ever while I was a witness going on a ministry did I ever feel like I was doing a good thing I never ever felt like yeah. this thing that I'm doing benefits people and right. the world is a better place for the fact that I'm doing it I never ever felt that right. not one single
1: time Right the same yeah I mean I feel like you know thinking about all the time I spent in the ministry and how unproductive it was um and just like who is it for obviously it was for us you know it was for us to like keep us in control like they say like you being in the ministry like edifies your own spirituality like you talking about your spirituality or talking about the kingdom like reinforces it into your heart which is like cult 101 like it's a pyramid scheme or you know, like you're you're going out there to recruit people under you so that they'll do the same thing. And it kind of like makes you feel good and um yeah, it's just been yeah, I don't know. It's been a it's been a really, really wild year. And I'm trying to do a little writing myself. Um, cause one of the things like like what you're doing this I don't know if it's just like I don't know if it's just me or if you feel the same way but like I have this like overwhelming sense of obligation to help people I don't know if it's coming from out of coming from being a witness it's kind of like beaten into you like you're here to serve other people but my like I just feel like I have to do as me- like I have to share my story <laughs> as much as possible so that people don't just say like, oh, Witnesses? Oh yeah, those are the people that just come to your door. I'm like, no, 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 they're a cult.
0: <laughs> <I feel laughs> and it's very exactly damaging. I feel exactly the same way. I feel exactly the same way. In fact, that's one of the things that frustrates me the most is that people don't realize how destructive the organization is. They just see Witnesses as just right. being a fringe Christian religion. They have a few strange quirks, but other than that, they're, they're right. fine. And when I say this, I don't mean individual witnesses. Individual Jehovah's Witnesses are, are, you know, mostly nice people. I can count on one hand how many witnesses I've met that I would say are really horrible people. (laughs) But it's the organization. It's the organization and its practices. They are really, really destructive and and they they do real harm and damage to people's lives. And I find it frustrating that the world in general doesn't realize that.
1: Yeah, I mean like honestly it is one of the how do I put this like I've been thinking about this a lot like it's it's almost like the perfect cult because the witness individuals themselves are the kindest most sincere they feel like they're so empathetic and like humble people um that are trapped in this like horrific hamster wheel where they can't get out. And they're, you know, they don't even know that they are afraid of this, right? And it's like, it's this weird Colton playing side. I think the problem is, is they pick like normal people who are just stuck. And they're gonna be continued, like continue to be stuck because they're tied down to the fear of losing their family or their friends. and. It's just so sad. And like, I don't, I don't even like, I don't judge people that shun me. Like for instance, my dad, he, he shuns me. My mom will text me occasionally. My dad won't talk to me. And I honestly just feel bad for him because it's so unnatural for, you know, a father to treat a child this way. Cause I know he loves me and I know that he doesn't actually want to do this but he's trying to be loyal as a ministerial servant, as a brother, as a family head, as a servant of Jehovah, which I can respect, like, because I did the same thing. But for the for an organization or a group of men to ask that of somebody that they don't know and not have to deal with that, like, emotional backlash that they do is, it's reprehensible. And, that's, those are the people I really feel sorry for because they have just as much anguish over what they're doing as the people being shunned, I think. Um, I mean, I could be wrong, and I don't know. Like, Maybe that's a controversial statement, but the institution and the, the leadership is vile. Um, and, yeah, I hope something changes. So I I think what you're doing is amazing and like it yeah I think what you're doing is like the first step to making a change is just sharing stories and you realize that they're you know that's from what I did I was watching all these things like like binge watching everything I could and realizing that people's experiences are really similar when they leave this religion and not just ours but other cults very similar and the emotional damage that is caused and the things that you have to like overcome is really similar it's not just witnesses um you know it's like in the gay community it's in from Scientologists or you know LDS it's just so happens that we you know came from the Watchtower
0: (laughs) well Jeff it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you yeah. thank you so much i'm I'm really honored that you've you know um shared your story with with me and um through my channel um i wish you all the best please do keep in touch thank you. yeah yeah
1: <laughs> i will for sure it was nice to meet you it was a it was likewise, great to meet
0: you likewise likewise and, and i'm and, so
1: fortunate to have found your channel so i will subscribe and yeah wait for all those shows to come out
0: thank you so much thank you i really appreciate that Thank you so much for watching. I really hope you enjoyed uh, this interview. What an amazing story. Um, Really, really insightful and uh, sincere as well. So if you like the interview, please click the like button and subscribe if you haven't already done so. Uh, Thanks again for watching and I'll see you in the next one. Thank you so much for watching to the very end of the video. If you haven't already done so, please like, leave a comment and subscribe to the channel. If you like my work and want to help me continue doing it, please support me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash jexit underscore 2020. And with that, I'd like to sincerely thank these very special patrons who make these videos possible.